many of you out there are like me and you're working creatively and you're coming up with an idea, you're writing a script or you're writing out a scene and you hit this point where your character has to be uh, pinned up against the wall and set on fire or uh, they get uh, hit by a car or a large fight scene ensues. And if you're reading this in a script or a feature film script or a television script, it's usually just a little paragraph of descriptions or a, a scene header. And that's pretty much it. It's written as like, you know, man pulls out a gun, shoots at somebody else, guy runs away, jumps from one roof to the other, jumps outside a window. Um, and it's so crazy to me how much work and effort needs to go into that tiny little description to make it work on the screen, to make it believable on the screen, and to make it safe for whoever's going to do it. And this brings me to what today's episode's all about. Stuntmen. Stuntmen fascinate me. And it's such an interesting job. I don't know how somebody can convince themselves as a car screaming at them that, hey, this is okay, this is what I get paid to do, but also after being hit by the car, having that mental wherewithal to, to understand that they need to land on one hand specifically in order to match the continuity set prior to that. It's insane to me. Like, what is the world like when you're lit on fire? And how do you control that fear, that natural fear that you have is you walk to the edge of a giant building and you step off of it. I've had nothing but the most respect for people that can do this kind of thing because I never would. I mean, you're talking to somebody or you're listening to somebody who suffered a major head injury from just falling from the distance between my feet and the ground. So to be somebody that is on set and willing to jump on the back of a motorcycle and jump off that motorcycle onto a train. Or if you guys have seen the trailer for the new John Wick movie, the sword fighting scenes on the back of motorcycles, insane. It's absolutely insane to me. And I am so happy that these people exist. I'm so happy that they're there because otherwise those little descriptions on the paper, you know, the hero uh, walks into a room with 20 uh, bad guys in that space uh, he, he rolls up his sleeves and begins to fight his way through the crowd. The amount of work that goes into that, it's really cool. So you're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy, and I am very excited about today's episode. I was able to convince stuntman Paul Lowe to be on the show. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, you can find him on Instagram. I'll put his link below. Um, but look him up on IMDb. So type in Paul Lowe, that's L-O-W-E, and you will see the movies that this gentleman has been on. And I'll just read off a few for now. Like uh, Dumbo, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Thor Rag Ragnarok, uh, The Mummy, Assassin's Creed, Jason Board, Spectre, uh, Maleficent, World War Z, Fast and Furious. Uh, this guy's been in everything, but apparently uh, one of his most infamous scenes was the scene in uh, Game of Thrones, which I haven't really brought myself to, to watch yet. And I know I'm one of the last people in the world that have, haven't really watched that show. I've seen a couple of episodes. Gina's deep into it right now. She loves that show. 
and spoiler alert, Gina, because you're not this far, but apparently there's an episode, and for those of you who watch the show, you'll know this, there's an episode where a small person is actually pinned to a wall and set on fire, and it's supposedly intense. I'm going to actually look up the clip, and that's Paul. Um, I had no idea what I was in for with this episode. I had found him on uh, Instagram. I actually think one of the fans had suggested that I talk to him because they were interested in hearing him on the show. So I reached out on Instagram. He got right back to me. Um, and we were able to make it work. He's in the UK. I'm here on the East Coast. So there's a bit of a time difference. Um, but we were able to make it work out perfectly. And I'll tell you this. This is one of my favorite episodes ever. Uh, he's an amazing person. Um, we talk about stunts. But more importantly, we talk about what it's like to be a quality human being. Um, and this guy has such a respect for every situation that he's put in. He's got zero ego, which I think is so important in our business. It's so rare in our business. Um, and the stuff that he talks about, the experiences that he has had, I'm completely envious of. And it isn't the experience of, hey, I get hit by a car. It's all of the people that he meets, all of the life lessons that he learns through the training, through the traveling, through the places that he's been, and he is so appreciative of it. This is such a fantastic episode. Uh, you guys are really in for a treat. Um, and as usual, I appreciate you guys following me. I wouldn't have met Paul if it wasn't for Instagram. Instagram is such a powerful uh, force today as far as reaching out to people and connecting folks online. And uh, please, if you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram. You can follow the podcast, In Love With The Process, P-O-D, on Instagram. That's In Love With The Process pod. And you can also follow my personal account at my Petchy Instagram. Both places, I am interacting with people. Uh, like I said, this episode came about because one of the one of you guys uh, sent me a note saying, "Hey, Paul would be a really great person to interview." I didn't even know about Paul if it wasn't for you guys. So, uh, thank you for loving the show. Thank you for interacting as much as you do, and I couldn't do this without you. Um, so. I don't want to hold this up too long because I fucking love this episode. And you guys are really in for a treat. So uh, you know the deal. It's beautiful out right now. It's a beautiful summer day. So throw on those noise-canceling headphones. Go for a walk. Uh, you can't really sit back. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> Enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. So, hey, Paul, thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, all good, all good. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that there's a time difference between the two of us. You're over in the UK. I'm still East Coast here in the US, so it's awesome that we're able to align, dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's get right into it. So, actor, stuntman, and pain in the ass. I love your description on uh, Instagram. It's really cool. <laughs> um, how, how did you get into doing stunts? Let's just start basic. How did you get into doing stunts? Okay, so from an early, well, from the very, the very beginning, um, I done a show in school, um, and it was like a talent show, and and I had to sing a little bit, and it was just really fun, and I thought oh, I enjoy this, so I just was doing all school shows, and then a teacher, um, who obviously she she maybe seen something in me, she said you should go and audition for the National Youth Music Theatre. Oh. So I I then went and done that, and I 
started acting then and from like maybe 12 no maybe 11 to about 15 I, I was with the National Youth Music Theatre and I'd done a lot of shows with them and Edinburgh Festival and then um then we done a, we took a show to the West End and it bugs him alone so I played like at 16 I was doing a show, a show in the West End and I finished that and then lucky enough straight away almost I got um a lead part in an Andrew Lloyd Webber show in the West End called Whistle Down the Wind and Cool. I done that for I done that for for two years, and then my agent agent at the time said, um, "Oh, I've just seen a, a thing here. They're looking for a stunt double for um, the young boy on a film called The The Mummy Returns. Uh, it's the second film, obviously, to The Mummy." Mm-hmm. And I, she said, "And the, you need to be a small man, and you, you're perfect." And I was like, "No, I'm I'm not a stunt man. You know, I'd always been physical and stuff, but I, I you know, I." I never wanted to be a stuntman. I, that wasn't what something I wanted to do. And she said, "No, just go and audition. You know, it's a it's a good thing to go and do. And you know, it might just be something that'll interest you." So I was like, "Okay." So I went. I auditioned for a man called Gary Powell, who now he's like, you know, he was the stunt coordinator of all the Bond films, and he's mm-hmm. a very talented stunt coordinator. So I went and auditioned and got it. And then I spent like six months on the Mummy Returns, the one on the young boy, and I met all these cool stuntmen, and I was like. I'm an actor. I want to do acting, but um, this is really fun. And, and because I was, you know, I was, I was a, a, I've got three brothers, so in my family I was the youngest. But I was always very physical, and you know, even with acting, I I loved physical comedy. So yep. for me, I just enjoyed getting thrown thrown around and and all doing all the exciting stuff. And then to be on a film set, like I when I was a kid, I dreamed about doing bits of theatre. Or, or a tiny little things on TV if I could, because where I'm from, a little place in Liverpool called Heighton, no one really gets these opportunities to do films. So I was like, if I could just, you know, just go on stage or just do a play something really small in, in a little TV thing, that would be it. So then for me to be like 16, 17 on a film set with like Brendan Fraser and Rachel <laughs> Vise, my mind was blown. So, so I just loved it from then on. And I went away, done my training to become a professional stuntman and then, I've just sort of been lucky because I'm small. I've got a niche. Yeah. Um, I've been very busy since. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I mean, that, that must have been such a, such a, like a, a scary moment. I mean, because you were training to be an actor. You were doing stage stuff. And then you, your agent tells you, hey, there's a stunt position ready. I mean, what was the first stunt like for you? you must, it must have been nerve wracking. You know, it's funny because it wasn't. It, it should have been. But because I was young and because I was fit, when, when you're young, you have no real con- conception of, of um, the dangers or how things can really affect your body. Now, you know, I'm 38 now and I've got friends who, who you know, are badly injured and, you know, can't work anymore. And But back then, you, you don't, and you don't think you can get hurt. So as much as I was nervous, my very first stunt I ever did on The Mummy Returns was, it's quite a famous shot. It's a shot where the pillars fall the kid jumps on the pillar and the pillars fall like dominoes and it's like yeah. a 360 degree shot and it was a big stunt and that was my first ever stunt um, <laughs> wow. And, wow. And, it, and it's funny because i was back i was back at, it was in shepparton studios and i was back in shepparton and every time i walk past sea stage that's where it was i always look at it and think that's where my first stunt was like it's yeah it's strange but no i didn't i wasn't nervous to doing it i should have been because it was dangerous but just me being a young a young lad, I was just like, yeah, I just want to do this. This is going to be fun. <laughs> oh, dude, I have nothing but the most respect 
for stunt people because it's from a creator's perspective, from a director's perspective, um, you guys like help make these ideas come to life. I mean, whenever you put something down on paper, it's like, you know, someone jumps out a window or someone catches on fire. You never really think when you're writing, like how the, how the fuck am I going to pull this off? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and then you have to ask somebody to do it. Cause I wouldn't light myself on fire. I would jump out a window. <laughs> so it's, it's fascinating to me that, uh, there are people like yourself out there that are willing to do it first off. Uh, and then second, love to do it. I mean, it's is it is it an adrenaline thing for you? Like what? Like what is? Why do you continue to do it? I guess is the million dollar question. Well, I think it's for me. It's um, I I I I enjoy uh, experiences. So being being a stuntman, um, I get I get to do really cool stuff and and nice stunts and. Um, I said this to someone a while ago. Um, it's not very often as you get old, as, as an adult, you get to sit back and feel proud of yourself. When you're growing up, you do all little things, and you can go, oh, "I was proud." Of it. But when you, as you get older, you don't really, you don't really go, "I'm really proud of that," or "I'm really proud of that." I'm doing stunts. It sort of, it sort of allows you to do things, and then to sit back and go, "Wow, I've done something there that not not many people get to do." I'm really proud of that. Hell That's yeah. one of the nice things. And then the second thing is. Um, the people and the, and the travel, I, I've I've travelled all over the world. I've been everywhere because of my job, and I get to do it for free. You know, I get to mm-hmm. I get sent to these cool places, and you know, um, anywhere, Spain, New Zealand. Uh, uh, we worked in in Vegas, like all these cool places that I've been. You know, we we done a film in Mexico for um, four months, The Legend of Zorro, and I, I'm just a little boy from Liverpool, a little lad from Liverpool, and I was on that <laughs> film every day, and I was with like. Mexican cowboys and they were taking me out and teaching me how to ride horses cowboy style and to lasso and th- these are these are experiences in life that you that you you would never get to have and if you embrace it you it's a real cool thing it's it's um yeah it's something that I guess not a lot of people are very um privileged to have so I think for me as a stuntman yeah I love doing stunts it's quite a cool little tag to have and it's good to to do them exciting things but I'm not on a, an adrenaline junkie. I just think my job allows me, as a whole, to 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 do a lot of good things and and maybe um, make me a better person because of them. That's so cool. That's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I love about doing the the movie business myself is that it it allows you access to these crazy life experiences that the average like nine to five working person just can't fathom and 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 stuff that they really never teach you where uh i i find that movies are a hundred percent like a social industry it's very much a social business and you get to interact with people that normally you'd just sort of walk by them on the street and wouldn't even talk to these folks and that you become best friends with these people if you're open to it, if if you're open to it, it becomes amazing. There was a guy in Mexico, and he and he was um he was a like a Mexican cowboy, and I can't speak any Spanish really, and he can't speak any any English, and we just got on really well. And every day he'd call me Polito, that means little pawn. He'd go, "Hey, Polito," and and he'd be so you know, and he'd be so like welcoming and warm to me. And I remember about a year later, I had his phone number and I called him, and it was what a Christmas, and I was like. Hey, Juanelo, Juanelo, uh, uh, and I'm trying to speak to him on the phone, and he was like, "Oh, Polito, Malika boys," and I, I couldn't really say too much on the phone to him, and and he couldn't really say too much back. But how happy he sounded, and I, 
you know, even for me, just be able to speak to him a year later, I've lost his number now, but it was, you know, little moments like that. Like I've, he touched my life. I've probably touched his life. You know, there, there's these yeah. people you meet if you can, if you can embrace the situation and embrace the people. I, I, I got flown to um, Prague to work with Roman Polanski and I'm, and I'm uh-huh. like 25 at the time and I just meet, and I'm me and Roman Polanski in a room having a meeting and I'm, and I know Roman Polanski is and I was like, wow, that he's an Oscar winner and I'm just Paul Lowe from Liverpool and then <laughs> I, I another film, I remember saying, oh, he said, oh, you've got to meet the director now, Danny will be in to see you soon and I was like, okay and I was just sitting in this room waiting for the director, Danny, he didn't know who the director was and then in walks Danny Boyle and he's, and I'm talking to Danny Boyle and I'm like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm like, I don't lose sight of the fact that I'm very fortunate to be in these, these are only human beings, you know, they're no, not special than you and I but but of the, they've just pushed themselves to a position where they you know they've achieved something really cool and and I I like the fact that I get to 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 interact with these people and you know just from from me and my family and my, my brothers and um, the normal life that I guess that they lead for me to to do something really different I I I'm really appreciative of that you know it's so amazing it's it's so nice to hear that you say these things man because it's such a beautiful. It's such a beautiful thing to to have a conversation with someone that has a really great respect of the life that they're living and the people around them. It's wonderful to hear you say these things. Well, I, um, I, I grew up, sorry, just quickly, I grew up loving Tim Burton, like uh, all his films. One of the first films me and my brother used to watch was Pee Wee Herman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I only found out a couple of years ago that was actually directed by that by Tim Burton. But, but I grew up like on Edward Scissorhands and, you know, um, Beetlejuice and... I've been looking now. I've I've worked on two of his films, and he I don't I don't know him as in like friends like we keep in touch. But when I'm on set with him, I I can talk to Tim Burton, and like we were in Shep in the studios, and Tim Burton was on his bike, and he was like, "Hey, Paul!" And he drove past me and waved, and he was like going over speed bumps, tra- speed bumps, trying to jump them. And I'm like, the 16 year old Paul Lowe would <laughs> would would be so excited to think that in what 20 years time he would get to work with Tim Burton and know him on like in a personal level, you know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm very lucky, and, and if I didn't appreciate that, I think there'd be something wrong with me. No, completely, man. That's amazing to be able to work with, uh, with an idol or someone that uh, you've always respected. God damn, that's so cool. Um, well, let me ask you a couple questions. Let's get into, yeah. let's get into like what a day to day for a stuntman's like. So, uh, when you're when you're on set, let's start with when you're on a job. Like, what is your morning? Like, how does your day start? Like, what what, what do you do? So the, there's two type of days. There's there's a day where you're doubling someone. So, for instance, if I'm if I've got to go in and I'm on that day, I'm I'm a stunt double and I'm going to be in costume and I'm doing a stunt. I'll obviously get in early in the morning and um, quick breakfast, and then you'll go to hair and makeup, mm-hmm. and they'll put, they'll wig you or do whatever they need to put on you'll get a bit of makeup put on and then you go to costume. And then depending on what stunts you're going to do, you could be wearing a harness. So you need to put the harness on beforehand or you need to put pads on. And then once you're padded up or put your harness on, then you put your costume on and someone will come and dress you. And then you just you basically could sit around then for three or four hours mm-hmm. until you get called to set to do whatever stunt it is. And it could be, you could go on set and do a stunt and do it once or twice and then it's finished and you're back in your trailer, you, you get ready and go home. Or it could be you go on set and it's a little sequence, so you're you're on set then for three or four hours or it just all depends. Mm-hmm. But a typical a typical day you know, can be from anything from like seven in the morning till six at night or you know, we've done a film called Pan and, and most evenings we were finishing like eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. Because 
we just had to get so much done yeah. and have a short space of time. We're just doing overtime, overtime. But then if you're not being a stuntable, you could be going in in the morning, you could be rehearsing for a few hours, you could be going on set, or you could be looking after a, an actor. So that means, you know, taking pads, being next to them when they're doing a stunt, saying, oh, maybe try and think about doing this, yeah. or or don't do that, this is safe. Or, you know, even down to being safety on set, holding mats or setting up box rigs. Like, people think stuntmen, you go, in, you go on set, get set on fire and go home. There's so <laughs> much... There's so much more, as you know, as a director, but there's so much more than being a stuntman than just crash bang wallop. Um, there's mm-hmm. after safety. There's we we done a film Dumbo and um, we had a, a th- the stunt coordinator at Raleigh Earlham. We had like a 3D winch, so he had this whole big 3D winch system. So Eva Green had to be on it, and it would move around the set as if she was like on this big ring, you know. And that's you wouldn't think of that as being stunts because it's it's not crazy. Someone you know, jumping off a building, but it still stunts because she's on a line, she's high up in the air, there's going to be safety around her. So things can be really, you know, crazy or things can be actually quite specific and small, what you probably wouldn't even realise. So, yeah, a day can be varied, to be honest. Hmm. When I talked to Wade about uh, stunt coordinating and stuff, he would t- he was saying that oftentimes it's the smallest stunts that end up being the most dangerous because... Uh, they often don't get enough rehearsal time, and it's it's weird. Like injuries usually happen on the simplest, simplest little stunts. Do you feel that way? Yeah, and also what what happens is on them simple stunts. You know, people say to me, "You're nervous," and I go, "Yeah, I do get nervous. I think anyone who's a good stuntman will get nervous. I'm not nervous of hurting myself or nervous of, you know, that something go wrong. I'm nervous because I want to I want to do as well as I can and get the shot. And I think when you the smaller stunts, people just go, oh, this is easy. And then you sort of become a bit complacent then. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when accidents can happen. And, and you don't want that. You know, the, it's that whole thing of you get, you can be on set all day and, and you'll do a scene and it'll be an acting scene and you can take three hours doing this acting scene. It might be a, you know, a 30 second scene between two actors and you'll take loads of time doing it. Then it'll come to a stunt and something quite specific and you'll want to get the stunt in one take and you want to go half an hour to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's where things become dangerous because things get rushed. And it's that whole thing of, I'm not saying you personally, but you have some directors who, who will get the shot and they go, can we <laughs> just do one more, one more? And that one more, sometimes at the end of the day is where things can go wrong. And that's where people need to be a little bit more like, actually, we need to be quite switched on here. We need, we need to keep to the program and what whatever we're doing you know, still be quite heightened because things can go wrong. Even in the smallest things, things go wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's interesting from a director standpoint because, um, I think, I think when I, when I do stuff, I'm sort of very empathetic. I, I try to understand like what I'm putting an actor through. I'm trying to understanding what I'm putting like a stunt person through. Um, but then there's that other mindset, and I know a lot of other directors that are in that mindset where they're always looking for perfection and like just do it again. And this little thing in the background was a little bit different. But I mean, these days with the t- digital technology and with the ability to change things and comp things and do all that stuff, you don't have to be putting folks at as much of a risk as, say, when it was in the old days, you're shooting on film and you didn't get it or something went wrong. Um, it's a, it's an interesting thing, and and. I think from my perspective, because I haven't done, I'm, I'm about to do uh, a movie, two movies that are going to have stunt work. So this is fascinating to me because I've never actually spent the time working with someone like you, a stunt person that is experienced in doing this. Um, and I think that 
uh, I have a lot of fear on my end sort of asking somebody to do something and then pushing them and figuring out what their limits are and trying to figure out how to get that stuff on film. So uh, this is very helpful for me because I can understand your mindset. I can understand uh, safety and and uh, what you feel is adequate. And it, it, and it really just comes down to communication, correct? Like being able yeah. to talk. Yes, it does. But it also comes down to you ha- choosing someone uh, correct to be the stunt coordinator because the stunt coordinator is the goal between between you and the and the stunt performer. Um, mm-hmm. So, and it's down to the to the stunt coordinator. Like a good friend of mine, Riley Earlham, um, he's the stunt coordinator on Game of Thrones, and I've worked with him a lot, you know, on Dumbo, and 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 he. So he's very good because ultimately, what you want, you want a shot. So the stunt the stunt coordinator has to go. If you ask him a question, you go, "I want this shot." It's down to the stunt coordinator to give you that. But it's got to be done safe. So what, like for instance, Riley Earlham is good at. He he will say, "Well, we can't we can't do that stunt the way you want it to be done because of whatever, whatever, whatever." But I can still give you exactly the same shot. We just need to do it this way, which is more safe. Mm-hmm. And that's what a good stunt coordinator should do. You know, there's so many times when, I, as a stuntman, we'll do something, and you you know, there's a sequence, and and you're doing, and you're like. It, it's made it really difficult because I've got to do them two things there and then I've got to go and do that one thing there. And I know for a fact that the, the director's got to cut in between and cut away. But but it's making my job really difficult to do all them three things. And then you watch the film, yeah. and exactly what you said is like, there'll be that shot and then the director cuts away to something else and then goes back to what you were saying. And it's almost like the director should have an understanding of for a stuntman as in like, well, I want this amazing shot, but I... I know that I'm going to cut away at this point, so that gives me an out for to, for the, to let the stuntman go. Well, I'll do this first, then we can do that other little bit as a separate shot. If you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, no. That's fascinating because then you're dealing with sort of complication stuff, like because it's sometimes, and I don't know a specific, and I'll just make something up. But sometimes it's like you know, if you're doing wire work and you have to jump from one thing and then maybe twist and then grab something else, the complication yeah. is in that twist and grabbing something else. Is yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the, some directors will go, no, no, we want this, and you could take ten goes of jumping across something, landing really difficult, twisting, and then got to jump off somewhere else. Just as an example. And then in your head, you're like, I know when I when I land, the director's got to cut away to an actor's face or whatever. And then it's got to cut back to me jumping to the other place. So really, we could do this in two separate shots. And then the director's like, no, no, so you do it. And everyone knocks the pipe out. And, you know, you've probably got loads of bumps and bruises. And then you watch the film and the cut's there. You know, <laughs> ultimately, as, ultimately, as a stunt performer, you've got to do as you're told. So you want to do what the, what the director wants. But also a good stuntman. I've been doing this for a long time now. I've been I've been a stuntman for eighteen years. So as much as a director knows what they're doing, I also know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else, but also I could be working for a director who's been in the business for eight years, and I I know a lot more about action and filming action than that that director does. So, but you but obviously I can't say nothing. If that's down to stunt coordinator, but you don't want to overstep your mark. But sometimes you do have to take a deep breath and go. This is just a little bit ridiculous because we're doing stuff here that probably isn't even going to be used. Yeah, that's the worst. That's the worst. And, you know, there's something to be said about that. Like when I collaborate with with folks, whether it's uh, a stunt person, whether it's a director of photography, or even if it's just a props person, uh, if they have more time in than I do, I love that. Because that, yeah. that's, that's just like adding another eight years, another 10 years to my experience level. 
And then I, I'd never understand directors that end up being dictators where they're like, I know fucking everything and this is what it's supposed to be because that's not, I think it's bullshit. At the end of the day, as a director, you're coming in and you're casting not only your talent, you're casting your stunt people, you're casting your crew, you're casting these people around you that know more than you do because you don't have all the answers. There's no such thing as a God human that's like, I know exactly how to jump off that thing and twist and grab that ledge. Yeah, I have no fucking idea. I have no idea what it's like to be strapped into a harness. I have no idea. You know what I mean? If you're a director, then obviously you're employing those people because you want them to do a good job. And you're employing them because you think, well, I'm employing this guy because he's very good at his job. So I'm putting faith in knowing that he knows what he's doing. So I guess then to embrace it and to go, well, if he's been doing it for 20 years, I'm going to... I'm going to take his opinion out and I'll roll with it because that's only going to make my product better at the end. That, that That's what it should be. Well, you find that some, not everyone, but some some directors um, can cannot be that way because they yeah. ultimately they want full control and it's like, no, no, no. Um, and it's a shame because you'll you'll do something and then you'll sit back on a film and you'll watch it and you go, ah, oh, that could have been amazing and, and, and it's not. You know, and, and then... The other thing that's interesting, too, is that because there's been so many films, there's so many stunt movies, and uh, there was a period of time, like, early on with stunts where uh, films were, like, heavily cut. You had, like, the Bourne movies, which were, like, very handheld, very shaky all over the place. And then the audience kind of revolted against that. The audience was like, hey, look, this is – we don't know where we are. It's too frenetic. It's too many cuts, too much of that. And so then now – there's been this twist in the opposite direction where everybody wants to see things in like one takes and very long takes and very choreographed stuff. Does that make your life more difficult? In one sense it does, but also um, as an example, I worked on the first Batman film, the first Christopher Nolan Batman film. And there's a scene, there's a scene in, um, it's like in a jail and Batman has to fight uh, the guy playing Batman. uh, Christian Bale. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, but when he's when he's not Batman, he's the character he plays. Um, oh, Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne has to fight all these. I think it's Thai people in this prison, and I seen the previews for it. So Buster, who was the stunt double at the time, because I, I was on the film, I watched the previews, um, and the previews was amazing. And even as a one shot, he was fighting these guys, and every move, like it must have been like thirteen or fourteen guys all at once, and it looked brilliant. And I was mm-hmm. like, I can't wait to see the film. And it came out and. It felt like the camera was just in the face of everyone and you couldn't see anything that was going on. So, and that's a shame because as a stuntman and, you know, even for Buster, who was a stunt double, you want to you wanna show off your good work and no one will ever know how good that fight was because it was just cut to death. So yeah. even if, even if like a fight, even if doing it as a one and doing it all in one, even if that's difficult and it becomes hard work, if the, if the product at the end is going to be better, then... One, it's better for the film. Two, it's going to be better for the story because it read it reads more. And three, the stuntman gets to go, that was me. And you can see the good work we've done. It's a shame now when you watch these films, there's a fight sequence and you're like, what's going on? I don't, even, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. I don't know who's fighting who or whatever because it's just cut to death. I think that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. And and so then when you're dealing like in a situation like that where he's you know fighting 15 people and if you're covering that on a wide, that becomes very much like a dance sequence, right? Like you guys are choreographing almost like dance moves, like position yeah, and stuff, is. right? And, and it's yeah. also what you got to think of. If, if the guy, if Buster's fighting the one guy and there's all these other people, it's all it's the people who aren't fighting him who've got to keep busy. Yeah. And but everything, you know, because it was, if you, I don't know if you remember, but it was set outside in the mud, so it was raining and there was mud and it was a big fight. But yeah, it, 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 it is like a dance. 
and it's like everyone has to know where they are at the certain point. And when when I seen that previous, and it was perfect, and to put they must have put that much effort into doing it that when you see that when you see the the final cut, it would have been worth just cutting it as a, just shooting it as a master and just go and look at this, or even have one camera and just like following you know from far but following round because you would just go you get a sense of how amazing it was and how big it was. Um, but yeah, stuff like that, like fight scenes and and them kind of sequences, a lot of a lot of work can go into them. And then it's a shame then when you see it and it's like all the hard work is like just cut to death, and you're like, wow, that, we could have just done that in a day, not even rehearsed it, and we would have got away with it. <laughs> and and so then, if you're working on like a fun like a, a fight scene like that, that's like what months and weeks ahead of time in like a warehouse space with a bunch of guys, and you guys are just sort of blocking it out and working through yeah. it. Yeah, you'll just go in, you know, to ideas. So you'll just, depending what it is, you'll just have little weapons. Normally the weapons are like a, a pole <laughs> or, you know, like literally literally you'll make like shields of cardboard or whatever. You just you just make things like little props of what you might use. And then when you get an idea of the fight, you'll rehearse, rehearse. The di- the, sorry, the stunt coordinator will come in. Um, or you could have a fight coordinator now, uh, depending on what the production is. And then you, mm-hmm. they'll just say, yes, I like that. I don't like that. And you'll start putting things together. And then what normally happens then nowadays, they'll shoot a previous. So they'll they'll shoot a version of the fight. They'll edit it. And then they'll show the director then and the di- or the director and the producers come in and watch live. And they'll go, yeah, that's great. And normally what you think, well, if we've shot a previous and we've done it this way, maybe they'll try and keep to that because that's the best way to shoot it. And some yeah. films will. But then other films, you know, the di- the director will get on set and he'll go, let's shoot this, and then things can all change then. Oh, weird. Okay, so then as a stuntman in, like, a group of those people, you're actually designing your own physical fights with whoever your partner is? Is that how that works? Yeah, well, if, if there's a lead character uh, and then, you know, he's got, a, he's got a story to tell, then there'll be a fight then. But sometimes what happens is it'll be like, okay, Paul, you go in, you... you take a hit off that lead guy, you fall on the floor, you get up, then you start fighting someone in the back. And then what you'll normally do is then you have to come up with your own routine in the back. Because you've got to remember, if depending on what it is, you you might have 20 people all fighting at once and the lead guy coming through. Everyone's got to look busy. There's nothing worse than watching a fight sequence and then seeing people in the back just doing like, you know, really crappy fights that and you're obviously just going through the motion. It's like, it takes you out of that moment then. Yeah. And you want to you want to be you want to be in the film and believe it, and so everything's got to be looking real. Um, you know when you watch these amazing films, even like get, not, not to refer to it all the time, but like Game of Thrones. Um, if you watch the fights on Game of Thrones, everyone is fighting. Even even in the back, like the the extras used to come in and have like fight school, and then at the back they might have like a sequence where it'd be like four moves. So they do four moves. I do a move, you do a move, I do a move, you know, for instance. And then they'll just, they'll do it and then fall down, get up and, and repeat them them moves. And because you're in the far background, if you know that so well and you can just repeat it and repeat it, it just looks like a, a huge mess, but a huge mess of everyone fighting. Like, you know, enthusiastically, that's what you want. That's so cool. That's very cool. Because it's very true. Like back in the uh, 70s when you watch like Kung Fu movies and then you, you've got the guy in the middle and he's fighting everybody and it just looks like the rest of the 20 dudes are just waiting their turn to go in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, hardest, the hardest thing in a fight is to be having to, having to run in to fight someone 
um, and take a beat and take like you know whatever it is whatever beat you're on the hardest thing is before it is what you're doing before so you've got to be fighting with someone else and then time you leaving that person to go over and time it correctly to fight the the main guy like that's where it becomes difficult that's why rehearsals are important because everyone has their own little story and their own little journey so you've got to just rehearse and rehearse and then you know the stunt coordinator will watch it and might say paul that looked really eggy. You need to leave it a bit longer or you need to get in there a bit sooner. You know, there's, there's a real mm-hmm. art to all this. This isn't just going on a day, come up with something and do it. Um, there's, you know, it, it, things can be really specific. Um, and also when you've got an actor, you know, depending on who it is, some actors might be really keen to come in and rehearse and want to do loads and loads of rehearsals. Some actors might not want to or some actors might just not have the time. So one, you've got to get, have a good stunt double. To, to be that person when if for the shots he can't be there mm-hmm. but also you've got to be a good stunt performer so if the actor's there if he's if he's way out of time like you've got to be good at your job because you might run to the actor and he he hasn't finished killing the other person yet but you know what I mean so you've got you've got to really um be able to overplay something or underplay something or time something like yeah it can be it can become really difficult <laughs> it's not as no, easy like- as you you run in you take you you take two beats and die. It's not as easy as that. Yeah, no, that makes sense because then you're you're basically there to support the lead actor. So you're trying yeah. to just pace yourself so that he or she looks the best yeah. while they're doing it. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, well, so then you must get really close with uh, this team of people that you rehearse with. Are you in like a regular group? Do you usually get hired by the same team of folks or? Is it a different t- a community every time you do a project? So what happens is it's the British Stunt Register is is obviously the group of people in the UK. It, and what stunt coordinators will normally do, they'll normally have a team. and But it's not... Normally that team will stay the way it is. They'll bring people in and out. But normally a stunt coordinator has a specific group of people he likes to use. Um, because I'm four foot eight, I double for kids and I'm small. I'm lucky that I get to work for different people because obviously I double for kids. So I get mm-hmm. to, if someone needs me, they'll just phone me up and use me. So so I've got people I, I work with a lot, but I've also had the experience of working with other different people. But Rowley Elam is a guy I, I have worked with a lot recently, um, only because of Game of Thrones and then Dumbo and we've done like Miss Peregrine's Home for Curious Children. In each one, there was a lot of kids. And then obviously for mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, um, there was done some wide stuff and like it was on smaller people so um yeah I've, I've been lucky really that i've got to so work cool. with a lot of different stunt coordinators that's that's i guess for my size it's just sort of helped okay so this is fascinating so you're you're doubling for kids and obviously you're you're a grown person you're a grown adult so like when you get into those sequences are they trying to write into that scene like uh like a baggier outfit or like a different kind of clothing to sort of cover up any sort of in, inaccuracies that there may be physically or are they just putting you far enough away from the camera that you're really not going to notice that stuff no so so i think the thing is because i'm four foot eight but obviously i'm a man so i'm you know i double kids who are maybe like 11 12 i'm naturally going to be a bit bigger than a kid who's 11 11 or 12 that's just the way it is you know i'm not i'm not a skinny little kid yeah and um, average maturity but you know I've doubled for kids getting knocked over by cars. I've I've done everything. I've set on fire. There's so many different things you can't. I've I've been for costume fittings and I've had 
costume designers and saying, oh, you're a bit bigger than this 12-year-old boy that that's playing the part. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to be, but the reason why you're getting me in is because this 12-year-old boy that's playing the part can't be knocked over by a car four times. Um, so people people have to remember, I you know, it's being a stuntable. I'm not a body double, I'm a stuntable. So a lot of the times, you know, I, I, I am actually quite small anyway, and I keep fit and try and keep trim. Um, but a lot of the times, it is what it is. If you want to do something, if you've got a, if you've got a kid, you've got to f- run over, or if your kid has got to fall downstairs, it's just a clever way of cutting from whatever the 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 director wants, and then you cut. Obviously, you don't want to show too much, but um, I've I've been in situations where you know, on the first season of Game of Thrones, I was Tyrion Stuntable. Mm-hmm. Now Peter Dinklage is smaller than I am. I'm probably I'd say maybe a foot or, or maybe a bit less than a foot taller than Peter. Um, but I had to ride a horse. So, because Peter couldn't ride a horse and obviously because he's small and it was unsafe. Mm-hmm. But, so you, it's just ways of shooting it and, you know, um, the the ways to cheat it. But n- no one has ever said, oh, that doesn't look like Tyrion riding a horse because you're in the story. You If it's shot in a way, that's not like... Oh, it, something's happened now. Is a big stunt. If it's just if it's just shot like it, as far as the story goes, and it's not oblivious, then it's clever. If you have Tyrion on a horse and you have him turning away on the horse, and the horse goes to trot, and the next shot is is a little bit further away, and I'm on the horse and we're, we're trotting a group, no one's gonna know. If you've got Tyrion sitting there and and it's shot on him, and the next thing, the next shot is me turning the horse and galloping off, people are gonna go, "Well, it looked a bit strange." You know, it's that. <laughs> It's down. It's down to you know the coordinator, the guest, but also the director going. Okay, well, we we need to film this in a way that we need a stunt double. So we'll we'll try and be clever and we'll try and shoot it in a way that it's not seen. But that doesn't just go for me. That goes for anyone because you know, girls. You could have an actress. A lot of actresses are really skinny, um, oh. and there's some there's some like skinny women now on the stunt register. Not skinny, but you know, like very thin. But sometimes it, it just can't be the case that you get whatever they got to do talent wise. For that specific stunt, you need a specific girl. So it's just using that person who's going to be better at the job. Um, and then, you know, you whatever it is, if she's a little bit more muscular or if she's, like, you know, makeup or whatever, you just got to try and hide it. That, that's what stunts is. People now, it's become almost like a thing that a stunt double has got to be exactly the same look and exactly the same size and shape as the, as the actor. That might work in some cases, but... You've got to remember, there's a stunt double who does the stunts, and then there's like a, a body double. I, I'm not a body uh-huh. double. I don't want to be. I want to be a stunt double. I want to do stunts. So, and I'm I'm the thing. Well, if if I'm too big for the for the eleven year old boy that you, you've got me to double, then fine, go and find someone else who wants you want to set on fire. He's four foot eight because you won't. All right, everybody, this is the perfect time to stop and take a minute. To appreciate and love the people that keep this show going. And yes, that's you guys. All of you people that continue to interact with us on our Instagram accounts. Uh, That's very helpful. And I appreciate it so much. Um, But let's let's be real here. This show wouldn't exist without the help of these wonderful men and women that have been here since the beginning. Uh, And some actually today. I'm very excited talk about a new sponsor as well so um if you got a sec let's just sort of uh give some props to the folks that support the show so first up 
our longtime good buddies over at Puget Systems. Now, if you've been listening to the show, you know what an advocate I am uh, for building your own edit system, for building a PC-based edit system. I don't believe in wasting money. I don't believe in paying for marketing. (laughs) And I don't give a shit about the unboxing experience. None of that matters. At the end of the day, I want a system that's going to run solid, it's going to run fast, it's going to be there with me for years, uh, and it's going to keep up. And like I've said since the beginning, all these things I talk about in this section, they're tools. They're not required. And I know that's kind of an odd thing to say while doing a sponsor's re- sponsor read, but it's true. I'm never going to tell you guys that you need to own these things to be a filmmaker. You don't need to own this stuff to be an editor. You don't need to own this stuff to be a photographer. At the end of the day, it all comes down to what's coming out of your head. It's whatever you can process or however you process a story through your life experiences. That's what's going to get you hired. That being said, there are tools out there on the marketplace that can make your job a little bit easier. And there are tools out there in the marketplace that can actually expand your thinking and your thought process and blow your projects up even bigger. Now, this is why I did the research and I hunted for a PC. Because at the time, I was having a lot of issues with Apple and with Mac. And, and the fact that a simple update or a software update would outdate everything I had. Like I would literally go from being able to edit in a timeline in Premiere to after doing an update, not being able to edit that same footage. And then having to go do the research and dig up a brand new edit system. And if you're gonna buy something new, the idea is that you wanna upgrade it, you want it to be able to last you a bit longer. You start having to drop a pretty big coin uh, just to be where you are or where you were before the fucking software update. And this was a few years ago. So I got frustrated and I needed something new. And at that point it was like, look, we're doing everything in Adobe. We're, sh- we're editing everything in the Adobe Creative Suite. So uh, why the hell do I need to be on Mac? Cause it works on them both. Um, and so I did the hunt. Now at the time I was running, uh, helping run a, a post-production facility. And I know that I can build PCs on my own, but I don't want to become customer support. I don't want to become tech support for everybody that works in the studio. I'm a, I'm a director, I'm not a tech support guy. So it was important to me to find a company, to find a business that had the same sort of customer support as what AppleCare supposedly is. And after some time, I found this company, Puget Systems, small company out of Washington, amazing guys, family run business, uh, and they built amazing computer systems, like high speed 4K edit systems, all real time. Um, And the prices were really affordable very affordable to the point where the money that I saved on buying one of those PCs, I can then spend that extra cash that would have cost me to buy one of the Macs to buy really great accessories that I needed, like maybe a new monitor, maybe a new keyboard, maybe some speakers for the space. All those little details that you never really calculate when you're putting it together your edit room, correct? So check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. You can actually shop for your perfect computer by software choices. So you can actually go there and say, hey, look, I want to build an After Effects machine. So they'll have a pull down menu for After Effects, and then they'll suggest the base system that then can be customized. And this is something that a lot of folks don't know. And I didn't know it until I actually teamed up with School of Motion folks, and we went to Washington, hung out of Puget, and built, tried to build the fastest After Effects machine we could. Certain software uh, platforms require different hardware configurations, and that includes all the Adobe stuff. So if you're building a specific machine for After Effects, 
you're not going to use the same software or the same hardware that you would have used for Premiere or Photoshop or any of those. Now, granted, you could build sort of a baseline machine that kind of does the job right across the board and be fine. For most of us young indie filmmakers, you're going to be fine because most of the time you're going to be working in Premiere. You're going to be outputting to After Effects to do a little bit of compositing work. Maybe you're using Audition. Look at the way I'm talking about Adobe. They need to fucking sponsor me, by the way. Uh, maybe you go and use Audition and uh, do your sound sweetening stuff, and then maybe you make some titles in Photoshop, and that's kind of what you're doing with uh, your edit machine if you're an indie. Um, but if you're starting to get specialized, or if you're working for a company that needs to build new stations, specialized stations, these guys have done all the research. They've tested, they've done benchmark tests on all the gear, all the new stuff on the market, and surprise, surprise, the newest hardware isn't always the best. Sometimes it's two or three models before that runs even better. And we heard that from the mouth of the dudes at Adobe. Really cool stuff. I think that video is up on Puget's website. If not, it's at School of Motion's website. Um, I'll put the links below, but definitely check out Puget Systems. Not only do these guys, uh, not only are these guys obsessed with art and obsessed with artists and supportive of artists, but they love people who build computers. They share their benchmark findings. So like if you wanted to build your own machine, go to PugetSystems.com. They'll share a lot of the stuff that they're figuring out and they're finding out about. And the thing that I love about them is that their customer support is better than AppleCare because you literally get a real person on the phone. When they ship you a computer, they tell you to keep your box because it has shipping materials in it. So worst case scenario, if something goes wrong with your machine, you can package it back up in that box and send it to them. There's a bunch of different ways. They have really fantastic customer support. Um, and they stay on top of everything. So I love these dudes. Sometimes I'll get some rando update, like I'll start up my computer and the operating system has decided to update itself and I, I can't figure something out or maybe uh, my, uh, my uh, Paragon HFS doesn't work or there's something else that isn't working because of that update, I usually, my first call is calling the dudes of PG system going, do you guys know what's going on? They go, yeah, we know. We just had the update this morning. We're also trying to figure this thing out. It's one of the most difficult things to be a hardware manufacturer, a hardware configurer, is that you're dealing with these constant updates that are coming from the software stuff. And I don't want that to be part of my daily routine as a creative. I want to be partnered up with a company that is doing all that stuff. Um, I have nothing but great things to say about these guys. They're amazing. They support me. They support my work. They love artists. Uh, reach out to them. Use the link that I have below because it'll tell them that I'm sending you um, and uh, go check out PugetSystems.com. Okay. Next, uh, Rule Boston Camera. So if you are an independent filmmaker, if you're an independent photographer, and uh, you're trying to keep up with all this new gear. So every year there's a new camera. Every year there's some new codec. Every year there's something new that comes out into the market. And it's super expensive. And it's really hard not to feel like the people manufacturing this stuff are really controlling the marketplace. And if you're a freelancer, you know how hard this business is. You know how hard the competition is. And the only way to really survive, the only way to make sure that you're available, the only way you can actually offer discounts on rates to get those jobs is if you keep your overhead way down. Now, if you're out there and you're one of these people that buys all the newest and latest pieces of equipment and then all the newest, latest camera gear, you realize that you eventually are just becoming a rental house, essentially. And you're trying to get your gear on all these jobs. 
And if you're a good DP, and if you're a great shooter, you know that it isn't necessarily always your camera that works best for the project. Every project has its own needs. So the way I've always done it, the way I suggest to do it to keep your overhead down is to make a great relationship with whoever your local rental house is. And there's a bunch of fantastic ones across the country. Um, but if you're in the East Coast and you're uh, uh, above New York and you're in the New England area, the place to go is Rule Boston Camera. I've had the longest working relationship with these guys. I think I have literally been with these guys for 18 years. That's crazy when I say that out loud. Uh, and the thing I like about Rule is not only do they have a warehouse full of all the latest and greatest stuff. I mean, I can get my hands on all the cameras that are used, like the cameras used to shoot John Wick 3, the cameras that are used to shoot anything I see on television. These guys have it. And not only do they have it, but they run training seminars. You can actually talk them into letting you come down and play with the gear and mess with the gear and test the gear and get yourself really confident with it so that when you go on that job and that producer hires you, you know what's up. And here's the cool thing. If you don't have the time to do that stuff and you don't know what's up, the guys over at Rule know all the details, know all the tech stuff. So just have their number in your pocket. And if you get on set and you're like, I really don't know where this is and I can't figure this out and these menus are fucking annoying, you can call them over at Rule and go, how do you guys do this? And they'll give you tech support right over the phone. Friend, like they're really excited to do so. I mean, I've literally hired the guys from the shop at Rule to be first and second ACs on my job because they fucking so goddamn knowledgeable about this stuff. So I highly suggest, if, like I said, if you want to be up on the game, go form a relationship with your local rental house. And it isn't as scary as you think for a lot of those young people because they're like, oh, how's the insurance work? And I don't have a ton of money. And how does this work? I know for a fact that Rule loves to work with uh, indie filmmakers. They love to start an early relationship with you. So they're always offering up deals. They're always offering up discounts depending upon the job. And if you go there, it's so easy. You can just do an insurance waiver. It's part of your package deal and you're ready to go. And if you get your own insurance, you save yourself some money, ready to go. They can walk you through all those things. So like I said, there's a lot of you listening that are here in Boston. There's a few rental places here in Boston. But if you're looking for the best camera gear and the best support in the city, rule Boston Camera. Okay, so here we go. Let me pull this out so that I get this right. Very excited today. <sighs> Very excited because we have a brand new sponsor for the show. And the thing that's really great about these guys is I fucking love their stuff and I use their stuff. So I reached out to them knowing how excited I am about their gear. And I thought they would be a perfect fit to be a sponsor for the show. So I reached out to them. Okay, guys. Um, and let me just get to it. Brand new sponsor, Quasar Science. All right, so any of you guys out there that are DPs or gaffers or lighting techs, you know that when I say Quasar Science, this is top-notch shit. Like every time you go to a rental house, every time you show up on a set, there's a Quasar tube, there's Quasar gear kicking around. These guys are fucking awesome, okay? Now, if you want to talk about advancements in technology and you want to talk about... Um, how excited people have been over cameras over the past few years. Between the Reds, between the Aries, and between the Alexas, 
it's been this huge battle and you go to NAB and every year it's the new release of some brand new camera and it's some new codec and maybe some, some sort of edit system that's dealing with that stuff. But I'll tell you this, the most exciting shit for me over the past few years as a cinematographer, as a filmmaker has been lighting and the advancements in light technology. So let me take a second here and, and sort of talk a little bit about lighting. I have some prior episodes. I did an episode with uh, my buddy Ruben and there's a lighting episode. If you go back, um, you can listen to uh, a bunch of specifics on how lighting works if you're unfamiliar with it. Or you can go listen to the episode with Jeremy Benning, who is the cinematographer for the show Expanse. Uh, and he talks about lighting. He actually talks about how he pre-rigs his sets completely with LEDs and how he uses LED technology for that. Um, but a little quick overview. There are different types of lights that are used on movie sets, right? So you have your tungsten lights, which are old school, very typical. You're very used to seeing them in your, in your home, in your house. Uh, basically, it's a light that has, I'm going to do a fucking horrible job explaining this, but it's a light that has um, like a, a core, like a filament that runs through it, and the electricity flows through that filament. It heats that up, it glows orange, and it becomes your light source. And this we're used to seeing with any of the light bulbs that exist in lamps. Um, those are great. They give off an orange glow. Um, it's Like I said, it's very old school. Uh, they tend to get really warm. So if you ever put your hand on one of those light bulbs, you burn those. You burn your hand. Um, so you have tungsten. You have HMI lighting, which is formed basically. And who are all the gaffers out there are going to give me shit for this? But it's basically um, uh, light that's created by uh, electricity that's jumping between two arc points. I'm doing a terrible job explaining that. But HMI lighting is uh, a white blue light. It's a very strong light. This sort of came out, I think, maybe late 70s, early 80s. Um, and everybody was really excited about it. Like a lot of old James Cameron stuff. You watch like Terminator and Terminator 2. Uh, he used a lot of HMI lighting. And he used unbalanced HMI lighting. That's why he had a lot of those really cool blue hues in the background and stuff. Um, those lights are fantastic because they replicate sunlight they essentially replicate the same intensity the same sort of coloring that the sun does but they draw a lot of power you need a lot of power to run those things and oftentimes more power than what a standard 15 amp or 20 amp circuit does in your house and when i say 15 amp or 20 amp circuit that's one of the circuits that will like for instance your kitchen and your bathroom may be on a circuit that's 15 20 amps um, so uh, some of those lights are too powerful to be able to plug into a socket in your house. Um, so usually when you have to use HMIs or you're using tungsten lights, you either have to do a tie-in, which is a longer thing, or you have to get a generator and a crew to deal with that. So as you're planning your shoots as an indie filmmaker, and you're like, man, I really want some uh, really cool lighting, and I want to get some large sources to come through these windows, you have to deal with the power, and you have to think about the power. And then as soon as you start to deal with these larger instruments, your crew size goes up, your equipment list goes up, it starts to become a lot more expensive. So you start to get like three grand, four grand, five grand, six grand just to light those sequences per day. Okay. So that's with uh, tungsten and HMI for large setups. Then came along uh, fluorescence and Kinoflows. And this was big in the 90s. So um, you've got like a lot of early David Fincher stuff. You know, you're looking at like seven. Uh, he lit with a lot of Kinoflow units. You look at uh, Fight Club, that whole matrixy green colored kind of thing was a lot of Kinoflow stuff. And 
the thing that was great about them is that they didn't draw as much power. Uh, they ran a bit cooler than the other lights, so they didn't get hot. Because when you start to deal with hot lights, your sets get really hot, hot, hot. And they start baking there, and then it becomes difficult for everybody. Um, but the problem that I've always had with Kinoflows is that they're really great if the light is right on the subject, but they basically fall off really quickly. Meaning that as you step like a foot or two foot two feet away from a Kinoflow light, the power goes way down. So you don't get as much of an exposure when you walk away from it. But they were very useful, very, very skinny lamp sources. You can mount them above people and you've seen the work of David Fincher. This stuff is gorgeous, right? So then recently, and by recently, I mean within the past eight years, uh, seven years or whatever the hell it's been, um, we've had LED technology really come to the forefront. Now we're seeing LED lights in everything, like everything you own at this point has some sort of LED lights in it, whether it's your cell phone, whether it's the reverse lights in your car, the directional lights in your car, everything has LED lighting. Now in the beginning, it was always difficult for, uh, for cameras to deal with the LED lighting. And I'm sure you've seen this with certain lights of your shooting, you get like weird strobing and you get this weird sort of scan line effect because of the refresh rate on the actual light itself would conflict with the camera. I'm sure there's a scientific reasoning behind it. I'm a half moron, so I'm not gonna be able to explain that to you. You can look it up online. But the early versions of LED lights, uh, even though they put out a lot of power, uh, they ran very cool, you could touch them when they were on, uh, they never seem to really work well with cameras. Then stuff starts to develop some more where they figured out how to create a light that is powerful and strong and doesn't flicker for the camera, which is great. And then advance a bit further and you're dealing with bicolor stuff. So you have a light that would kind of match an HMI or outside light, which is blue. And then you'd have one that was kind of colored to tungsten uh, to match like um, tungsten source light. But supposed to be like that tungsten amber, like a CTO, but it always felt a little pink to me and always felt a little bit off. So fast forward to now, fast forward to a few years ago, where the LED technology has completely taken off. It's amazing. Um, and you can now get LED lights that will put out the same sort of output as an HMI light, or as these lights that you used to need a generator or large power sources for and run them off of a circuit in the house. Some amazing stuff. And the thing that's really cool about it is that they don't require a hell of a lot of hardware to work so that they can be created and, and put in very small little units that can be tucked into places. You can tape them to the ceiling with paper tape. You can put them behind headrests in cars. You can tuck them all over. I mean, if you watched the um, Met Gala Ball this year, I forget who came out. I don't know if it was Pink. One of the artists that came out dressed as Cinderella and her, her dress lit up, that's all LED lighting inside that dress. And the thing that was really cool about it is that the new technology and the thing I love about Quasar, let me get back to the sponsor as I do this long fucking read. The thing I love about Quasar is that these guys are at the forefront of doing rainbow light technology so they can cover every color in a rainbow they can cover all that spectrum fully saturated light um, and why this is so great and why this is so cool if you look at my work and you look at my photography work or even you look at gina's work who does all of the fashion stuff we've been obsessed with strong um, high contrast colors for years and what this used to mean is that we would have to go down to one of the stage stores and sift through color swatches and color gels. 
and you'd be able to pick up a color gel and it was like a couple feet by a couple feet swatch and it's 15 bucks a sheet and then that gel gets ruined after a period of time so you'd basically go find the colors you like from a, from a gel swatch and then it, here's the high tech here's the, the high tech old way of doing it you would literally take that color gel and clothespin it to the front of the light to change the color of that light to whatever that gel was now the negative of that is that you have this giant gel roll that's constantly being destroyed. It's super expensive. You're trying to uh, clip it to these lights that are oftentimes hot and the angles are weird. It's always a pain in the ass. And then when you do so, when you use gels on lights, it cuts down the output from the light itself. So let's say that you were getting like a 5.6 from that light. It usually cuts like a stop depending upon how saturated the color is. So that's something that we always had to take into consideration. Now, with uh, lights like the stuff that they do over Quasar, they can do any color in the rainbow. You can dial in whatever gel type you want, which is amazing. And a lot of these things can all be controlled by a board, and these guys can all be daisy-chained together, so you can get multiple light units. Daisy-chain them all together and start to run patterns through them. Start to run stuff like they do at concerts and rock concerts where you can program in uh, light cues and color change cues. And a lot of these uh, light units have um, effects in them. So in a single tube light itself, you can program the effect of cop lights. So it'll flash between red, blue, and all that stuff. If you guys watch that sequence in the first season of um, Stranger Things, where she's coming down the hallway and she's confronting that demon, and the, everything's sort of strobing, and all of the uh, overhead fluorescents look like they're flickering on and off, that's all LED technology. And you can program in those flickers the exact way you want. It's the coolest thing, guys. If you're looking at all these amazing movies, like the new Godzilla movie, if you're looking at um, Atomic Blonde, or any of this amazing stuff, like all the John Wick fucking movies, these guys all use LED light stuff, and they use all rainbow light LED stuff. And I guarantee you these quasars are on those sets. They're amazing lights. And it's this is a long read, but these guys deserve it, and I'm very excited about it. And I know a lot of you guys that are listening, our DPs, our lighting technicians, our young filmmakers. Uh, if you are looking for some new lighting gear that's portable, something that's great for your kit and multifunctional, like you can use these lights as edge lights, you can use these lights as key lights, you can hide these lights in different spaces, I would definitely suggest going to quasarscience.com and checking them out. Now, right now, the lights that I love to use are these QLED or QLED rainbow linear lamps. They come in two foot, four foot, and eight foot. They have dimmers on them, they're controllable. They could daisy chain them together. They basically look like a lightsaber. Really rad stuff. And if you get one or two of those guys, you can do some amazing things. You can augment your lighting with it. You can do amazing low key light stuff with them. Um, really cool shit. And I know this has been a super long read, but like I said, these guys, are awesome. They're worth it. I'm putting a link below in the description. Go check them out. Look at the stuff. It's amazing. Now, unfortunately, they don't sell stuff directly off their website. They sell it to vendors. I'm going to make it really easy for you guys. I've got links in my Instagram bio at Mike Petchy or at In Love With The Process POD. There are links to vendors through Amazon that if you guys purchase it through them, go through Amazon. It helps us out because we get paid through Amazon. It also helps us out because uh, you'll be supporting our sponsor. And these guys are new. They're trying us out. We're going to have them for a few episodes. Show some love. 
go to their Instagram page, go through the links, tell them that you're happy that they're here on the show. Um, I'll try to get some of them on the show to talk about some lights and maybe I'll do a whole new episode on lighting because I know how much you guys like the old one. Okay. Wow. That was a long read, huh? (laughs) All right. So let me keep let me not keep you from uh, this amazing podcast that we're doing right now. So let's just get right back into it. Thanks for listening, guys, and thanks for your support. So there's a big difference between a body double and a stunt double. and But still, like if you are stunting for somebody, are you spending time with that person? Are you examining how they move? Are you watching their body movements or anything? Or does that not matter to you? No, yeah, um, yeah, it matters. Um, being a stuntman, you know, probably ninety percent of it is acting. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what you're doing, even if you you're doing a fight scene, you've got to act like the person. So, yeah, a big thing of it is to try and get mannerisms of that of the actor, or you know, it depends on what you're doing. If you know, if if you're if you're just doing a hit and hitting the floor, there's not there's not that much you can you can do to to look like the other actor. But if you if you're a lead double. And you're doubling the actor for a long time. They will get you to do a lot of things. And sometimes it might be, oh, the the actors had to go. Can we just put you in for this shot? You just need to run over there. So it, it it's good to watch the actor and pick up mannerisms, or you know, even little things of how they move or how they might jump. Like you want you want to perform and be as good as a good at your job as you can. And that that's everything. That's like picking up mannerisms and trying to. Even ask them, well, I've got to do this for you. How, how would you do it? Or is there, is there anything that you would like me to do? It's okay saying, oh, your actor's got to jump over that little, you know, bit of fire and then roll on the floor and stand up. I can do it and try and make look really cool, but the actor might go, no, 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 I, I don't want it to look like that. I want to I want to jump over and be on my knees for two or three seconds because I've got to take in a moment and then get up. You know, there's there's a lot more, like oh, I was saying earlier on. Than, oh, interesting. You know, so then, yeah. Uh, so you'll work out a you'll work out a moment with the actor because then he has to pick up the back end of it. So he's yeah. working with you and like how to get to the landing. Oh, gotcha, but, gotcha, gotcha. But also, I might I might do a stunt and the actor might not be there, and then they might do something after it, and I've got to go over to the actor and say, okay, so what happened was, um, I rolled over and I landed on my right arm. So when you're on the floor, you need to be on your right. Like continuity, and yeah, and that yeah. might, that might be down to someone else, but also that's down to me. You know, if they, I've had jobs once. Where, I remember it was for a TV show in England called EastEnders. It's quite a big TV show, and I had to get, I had to do a car knockdown, and I got hit by the car. Perfect in the air, landed on the floor. It all looked <laughs> great. They came over to me and said, "Oh, Paul, that was great, but we need to do it again." I was like, "Okay, fine. This is what it is. You landed on your right arm, but we've shot a, we've shot a scene after the this car knockdown, and a left arm is in a cast." So you need to you need to land on your left arm. Oh wow! And I was like, didn't no one didn't no one bother to tell me this before? And like, and that's what I mean. Like, there's a lot more that goes into it because you got to think. Well, okay, if if I do something, or if if he's holding a gun or whatever, and then it's me doing something. If the actor has to come in after me, if I've got my hand up, my right hand holding a gun, and then the next scene, the actor's got it in his left hand. It, continuity might the woman who's there or the man there doing continuity might have mightn't have known. It's down to me then to say, oh, by the way, when I stood up, I had the gun in my left hand. You know, this 
you just you want to try and help out as much as you can and make your make your act there look as good as they can. Yeah, and that yeah. that entirely makes a good product. That must have been difficult though, because let's say you get hit by the car and then you land on your right arm. I mean, that was naturally where your body wanted you to go at that mo- moment. For you to make that difference, for you to, to swap that and land on your left arm, does that change everything for you physically? Like, how does that work? Not really, because I think the first time I done it, I just naturally done what I felt, and then you, you sort of land and roll, and I just landed on it. So all I had to do next time was I just had to make sure that when I rolled, I just put it, I just changed my arm. You know, it's. It's I don't want to sound. Time. I don't want to sound big headed, but I'm. I think I'm a good stuntman, and I can take on a lot of information. So when stuff like that is little things to remember, it's just like okay, if I get hit in the air or whatever I'm doing, as long as when I roll, that my last thing I've got to just make sure my arm is underneath me. That's all you got to do. You know, if if you get knocked unconscious, then you can't do that. But if <laughs> it's still a, it's still a performance. It doesn't matter what it is. You're still performing. You've been hit by a car. You hit the floor. Like a lot of people think. There's a there's a, a clip on YouTube, uh, and it's from a TV show in England called Being Human, and it's a double car knockdown we had to do, and it I had to get hit by this car, and it was actually, you know, it really hurt, it, like it was a it was a big impact, and for a lot of reasons. But w- when you get hit, and you you're then on the floor, you then have to to stay in that position when they call cut, because continuity want to come over and take a photograph just for your position, then they'll put the actor in. And it was funny because I stayed still on the floor, and this is on on YouTube. You can still find it. And I stayed still on the floor, um, and then he went, "Okay, Paul, that's fine. Are you okay, get up." And yeah, yeah. And then they interviewed the actors after it, and the actor after it was like, "You know, this guy got hit, and he laid on the floor after it for like ten seconds. We were all concerned, like, what's going on? What's going on?" And then this actor just gets up. Sorry, this man just gets up. But the thing is, again, it's about knowing my job. I might have been hit by a car. And I might be on the floor and I might be in pain, but I've still got to lay on the floor and do my job until they say, yeah, it's fine. It doesn't matter what I've done. If I've smashed my leg, if I've hurt my arm, I still want to try and do as good a job as I can. God, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Because then you're just ignoring, you're ignoring the physical stuff that your body wants to do. And there's something really crazy about uh, having that, I, I guess it's just time in, having that wherewithal that when a car's coming at you and you get hit by this car that you're in the process of being hit by that vehicle and also saying to yourself in your mind, I need to, I need to land on my left arm. <laughs> like that well, reprogramming of your brain must have taken a little while to get there. Right. The funny thing about that job, um, you'll see, uh, you'll see if you, if people go and want to have a look on YouTube. Um, but so when we rehearsed it, we rehearsed the car going, and it was at night, we rehearsed the car going past us. And this is how much of a stuntman you, you turn into when you want to do a good job. The car was down at the end of the road, and they said, okay, three, two, one. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Full beam on the car, please. And next minute, boom, they put full beam on the car. And they went, okay. And in my head, I was going, huh? from me seeing the car, because the normal lights were on, when they put the full beams on, it was that bright. I couldn't really, I couldn't really gauge where the car was. So they were doing the countdown, it was three, two, one action. And in my head, my head was saying, "Tell them to stop because I can't see the car. I don't know." But, but also then I was going, "Well, if I, if I say stop, it's gonna look like that. I've, I've suddenly, excuse my language, I've shit myself, and I'm really scared, and, and I don't want to be like that because I'm not. I just want to make sure everything's safe." But I was like, "It'll be fine. It'll be fine." And the car came to me and. I had to basically because I'm small. I had to almost jump and hit the let the, like jump on the bonnet and let the car hit me. Yeah, and because because the the full beam, 
you know, I couldn't really see too well, and I, I misjudged it. I like a, a beat too late, and it actually hit my leg and flipped me in the air, and I thought I'd broke my leg. I was fine. It was all cool. But that's what I'm saying is you have this switch that turns off. Any normal person would go, whoa, but because of my job, because you do things, you when it's three to one action, that's it. It's it's going, that's it. And it's like, you can't, to me, to step out of that and go, no, 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 no. It, I almost feel like I can't do that. I've done a job, sorry to go on. I've done a job once, which is, again, is another story. I was on a cliff and I had to fall off a cliff backwards. And um, I was set and, the, and the, some coordinator shouted, okay, and in your own time, Paul. And I looked at him and I was like, what? And he's like 30 foot below me. And I was like, in your own time. And it was so weird for, I, I almost felt like I couldn't jump off the cliff because that three to one action is a switch off for me to go, okay, I go now. For me to do it in my own time was weird. So I, I just done it and came off. And then he said, we need to go again. I went over to the guy and I said, oh, excuse me, can you call me in a three to one action? He was like, yeah, I just wanted to give you in case you wanted to set yourself. I was like, no, no, no. I need a three to one action because then like, I just go. <laughs> that's awesome actually so that's that's your trigger so as soon as you hear that you're like okay no second guessing no nothing i'm ready to go i'm just gonna do it you know yeah because you you should be in a position to one of looked at the risks and eliminated whatever risks they are um i'm professional enough that i you know i'm I'm focused on what i'm doing and in anything you nerves are really good Nerves will, will heighten your senses so you, you're you aware of everything. So you're always going to be nervous before a job and your body's saying, oh, don't do this, do this. But when you do the three to one action, that for me anyway, that's a that action is like, okay, let's go, let's just do it. Let's do this. And I guess that's what I've learned over time is that action just makes me push myself and, and hopefully what of everything that we've looked into and everything that we've rehearsed, you then put it in motion. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool, man. It's it's really awesome to 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 hear you talk about this stuff because it goes from being because obviously with anything in our business you know that you don't want the audience to know too much and the audience sort of yeah. looks at it from the outside and you're just like yeah. how the fuck did that guy light himself on fire and throw him off a cliff but it's I've always been curious about that like how do you mentally prepare yourself for that how do you mentally stay in that scene like is there any stunt that you do that scares you? Like, are you afraid of fire? Are you afraid of anything specific? No, I, I, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I'm, I'm not great with heights, but I mean, I've done like 45 foot high falls um, and that's really high. And I'm, I'm not like scared of heights, but what, what, what I am scared of, I'm scared of doing stuff higher than that because I know the risk. I, I haven't done, people who do high falls and stuff, have, you know, I've done training for years. I haven't done that. So when I get up a height, if I'm in control of it and it's a it's a height that I'm happy with, but I'm also, you know, in my career now, I don't have to say yes to every job. It's not about me trying to show that I've got big balls and I'm this and it's not about that. I, I'm good at my job. I want to mm-hmm. I want to produce good work, but I also want the stunt coordinator and the director to be happy with to be happy with the end product. If I get on set and I go, yeah, I can do a seventy foot high fall, and I get there, and if I do it wrong and and break my back or if I, you know, I don't want to do that. So it's, I'm not scared of, of, of anything. I'm just very wise to what I can and can't do. Mm. And so if, if I was to say, yeah, I'll do a 70 foot high fall, I'd be really scared then. So most of the stuff I do, where if it's get set on fire, high falls, it's all things that I'm, I'm in control. Of. I'm not in control once to say, once you say action, because, you know, ultimately it's dangerous, but 
there's a level you can go to, like setting on fire. I'm when you get set on fire, yeah. Obviously, I'm nervous of doing it, but I'm not nervous of set on fire. I'm I'm nervous because I want everything to go okay. But but the the things you do and the process you take before they light you, you eliminate it as much risk as you can. And as long as I stay calm and I focus on what we've rehearsed, I should I should be fine. And then if I'm not fine, then we we've also put in place measures that if something does go wrong then we can address that then we have fire safety or you know that that's what it is so mm. so before every stunt yeah i'm nervous but i wouldn't i would i wouldn't say scared because i think scared is different scared is when you're you know scared is is scared is when you've said i can do something and you you possibly can't do it and then you you put yourself in a position where you can fuck up and you'll make yourself look silly and someone else looks silly i don't I don't really want to do that. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I want to have a good name in this industry, and I want I want to do good things, and I want people to go, "Yep." Even if that means me turning a job down, because I go, I don't want to do that. That's I can't I can't jump off a cliff a hundred foot. That's not me. You know, <laughs> getting hit by cars. If I'm honest, I've done a lot of car knockdowns. If I get phoned up now to get hit by a car again, I probably won't do it, and that's not because I'm scared. It's just I've done a lot of car knockdowns and. For, I'm four foot eight. Car knockdowns are so on my height are really dangerous compared to someone of six foot. Because obviously my my hip is almost at the same height as the bonnet. Yeah. And and I'm thirty eight now and I don't want to be doing stuff to try and prove I've got big balls because I've done another another a, a lot of stuff in my career to show that. So for me to have longevity and, you know, again, maybe I don't want to speak about money, but a lot of the times when you do big stunts you get paid adjustments. And basically, you, you get paid your daily wage, and, and then depending on how big the stunt is, you get paid an adjustment. So if if you're doing a big stunt, you'll get a certain amount of money. Um, and that means that production, obviously, you have to pay you per take. So it stops the director going, I'm going to do it 20 times. So it's good for everyone. Right. It's good for the man because he gets more money, but also they're not going to be silly and put you in in harm's way. But every every car knockdown I've done, maybe bar one, I've been paid correctly. Like every other car knockdown I've done, I've never got I've never got a good enough adjustment for it, and the amount of risk you're putting into to doing it for the money you're getting, it yeah, I'm not interested. So you yeah. know, and and again, people might listen to this and go, "I'll oh, listen to him being a stunt man. He's not going to do a car knockdown." Well, you stand in front of a car and get hit, and then get up and do it again, and then get up and do it again. <laughs> like it's not very nice. You walk away. I've I've I got hit by a if you know like a, a black cab, a London black cab. Yeah, um, I had to do an, a knockdown on one of them, and basically the front of that is at my shoulder height, and I had to do it three, three times. And I remember walking away and having concussion, and just like being like my head was just spinning, and I, and I didn't get paid correctly for that. And it was like, what, what's the point in doing? You know what I mean? I've got friends of mine who, a good friend of mine, David Holmes, he's in a wheelchair for the rest of, the rest of his life. He broke his neck on a film. You know, oh. you, I don't want to put myself in a position. Where I'm doing really dangerous things, but the the I'm I'm gaining nothing from it, and the director and producer are. You know what I mean? Like I'll do a stunt yeah. if you're gonna pay me correctly, because the reason why you're asking me to do it is because there's no one else who can do it. Then if you want to pay me what it's worth, then cool. If not, then look for someone else. I'm happy with what I've done in my career, and I'm sure I'll go on to do other things. I, I don't need that one car knockdown or whatever that that one hundred foot high fall. That that's not for me. Uh, dude, it's smart. You're smart. 
It's very smart. And and believe me, um, I know exactly what that, I, like your body is so uh, important and so it can be so fragile. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but years ago, one of the things that happened to me, I went ice skating for the first time in my life and I got asked to go on a date and I went on the ice, put on ice skates uh, and uh, skated out and slipped and fell backwards and landed on my head. And I ended wow. up cracking my, I cracked my skull, dude. And I had a hematoma forming in my brain and I had bleeding in my skull and multiple concussions. And that was just from falling, from yeah. like falling backwards on my head wrong. So like if you land the wrong way, it's, it's a game ender if you land yeah. the wrong way or something happens. So um, to not have, to be working with folks that don't have the respect for that, um, I mean, it must be completely apparent right away. Like, I, I, I respect you for coming out and saying, look, fuck off, man. I'm not going to. Yeah, exactly. I'm but it's like, it's like what I said earlier on when I said, you know, my very first stunt on the Mummy Returns, I wasn't nervous because I, because I was young. I didn't, I just thought I, I did whatever you want to me. I won't get hurt. I'm really tough. That's what I thought. But as you get older, you realize that actually health is wealth and your body is actually fragile and, and, you know, I've had friends who've been in positions where they've hurt themselves and they put themselves, not them, but they've been put in, in positions where, you know, they'll struggle with something for the rest of their life. I don't want to be in that position. So I know now, 38 years old, I'll still do things, you know, I'm, I'm still doing stunts. I'm still very physical. I'm still very fit, but I just, my career is my career. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when it's all said and done, no one's going to go, Oh, Paul Lowe didn't want to do this. Like, I'll choose what I want to do. And and I'm happy with, with where I am in my life and my career. I don't need to prove to anyone. Right. Um, and, I, and I think nowadays anyway, you know, there's, there's people want to try and push the boundaries and push it and push it and push it. And that's cool. But, the pe- you know, stuntmen need... We we we, we don't get the, the recognition that we deserve. Mm-hmm. And, and nowadays, I think it's, it's up to us as stuntmen and, and performers... You really got to take hold of what you want to do, and a lot of people now come out and say, "I'm a stunt coordinator. I'm this and this and this." You you have to know your industry. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know your industry. You have to know who your bosses are. You have to know your riggers are because you can put yourself in a position where your career maybe maybe ended and and the career you wish to have may be short lived. I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want to be in that. I love my job. I love doing what I do. I love going into work. I love seeing the people. I love working with friends I love doing like short films I love doing like I, I enjoy my my career so I want to have as long a career as I can and if that means mm-hmm. me going when someone phones you up and, and I'm saying nah that's not for me I, I can't do that that's not something I'm able to do then so be it mm. and dude there's something so great I get it because it's the same thing in other departments like I've 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 seen like and I've worked on like uh, very indie indie very low buck movies where the producers will just abuse everybody you know yeah. so they get to the point where they're working uh, crew people uh, ridiculous amounts of hours and they don't give them enough turnaround I mean there are new rules now because of the deaths of yeah. so many uh, film employees that uh, were lack of sleep and just falling asleep on the road trying to get yeah. hold from stuff so you do have to be aware of that you have to be smart i mean because the business is such a romantic business i mean and everybody wants to get into it because of their dream this is their dream and i want to make movies and i want to do that stuff and it's very easy to be exploited if that's your only mindset if you're 
if you're like, this is so amazing. And, and it is. You're very lucky to be there. It's, a, it's like a lottery winning ticket to get in front of a camera on a big movie. Um, but you also have to have the smarts that you do where you're sitting there going, look, all right, there's an expectancy here. There's, I mean, how long is my body going to take getting hit by a car? Like, yeah. I mean, what is the average, like how long, when do stunt uh, people usually retire? Like what is the lifespan of a stunt person? Do you know? It just all depends. You know, um, as a stunt performer, you normally, you know, there's three levels. You start off with a set, like it's called probationary. Then you go, then you go to intermediate. It means that you've been doing it for a long period of time and you've done a certain amount of stunts and then you lead up to a stunt coordinator. Um, so then when you get to a stunt coordinator, obviously if you're then coordinating films, then you can, you can stop performing then. Um, and you don't have to, to do all the, the big stunts and the big gags. Um, and then obviously after stunt coordinating, then the second unit directing, which a lot of people do. See, if I like doing stunts and I'm 38 years old and, I'm not trying to plug my Instagram, but I train a lot, and I'm, you'll see I love boxing, and I, I box nearly every day, and I, I run and cycle, and I try and keep myself really fit, so normally people, you know, maybe, I don't know, like, because your body weighs down, a lot of stuntmen have, like, bad knees or bad hips, mm-hmm. um, and so it could be 40, 45, 50, but you, obviously you can't be doing, like, really big stuff and big stunts then, but I, for me, on a personal level, I just try and keep fit, and try and stay healthy and in shape one because I double kids, so I want to try and stay as lean as I can. But also two for my body because I, I want to do it for a long time. We were doing Game of Thrones and we we done three months of night shoots, and I made sure I sacrificed an hour of sleep every night so I'd still get in the gym and do it because one mentally it, it keeps me mentally sane because I know I've done it. But two, it's good for my body. I think if you can keep yourself fit, health is wealth, um, and especially in our industry as a stuntman. I've seen a lot of people become stuntmen and and all of a sudden they're really fit because they do gymnastics and whatever. And after a couple of years, they get a little belly on them because <laughs> they become complacent. And then and then someone else comes in then and a new guy comes in who's really fit and they take over. So I've always been like, I want to be, oh, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I want to be the best version of myself. There's only one of me out there, my size. I just want to try and keep in shape, keep fit. So I'd like to think I can do this I'm 38 now. I'd like to think I can do this till 45, um, maybe in a bit longer. But, you know, the progression is, you know, then be a stunt coordinator. But if I'm totally honest, this is going to sound silly. I never I never wanted to be a stuntman. It just became a real cool job, and I've just went along with it. Like, my dream would still be to be an actor. I love acting. You know, I love I love creating things. I'm, I'm a friend of mine now, Damien Walters. He's a a stuntman, he's on second directing, he's now doing his own film, and I've got like a nice little part in that film, And it, but it, it's nice. an amazing for me, because I can go on sets, and big sets, you know, Star Wars or whatever, and it's like all this money, and then I'm going to this like smaller film with a friend of mine, and I'm probably having more fun doing this smaller film and acting, than I would <laughs> on a big film, and and that's, you know, but it's, it, it shows me a lot, as like, as much as I enjoy doing stunts, and I can, I can, you know, still go on and do it, and I can coordinate, that's I'm not that's not that's not just me I'm not just going to be known for that I think I still want to I've still got dreams to go on and do other things and, and act you know what I mean that's what I guess if someone said to me right now Paul you've got two careers you can either be a real successful stunt coordinator or you can be a good actor and you go on and just have a nice life doing nice acting things I'd probably choose an actor because nice because, that, because that's where I went that's what I, that's what I wanted to do because but it it became a point where I'm four foot eight and when I was growing up 
I couldn't really play kids anymore because I was like getting too old. But then I couldn't really play old because I was like small. So, but now I'm that age, doors open and I'm like, mm, uh, maybe, maybe I should try and pursue that a little bit more. But I think for mm. anyone, I think for anyone, not just like me, but I think for anyone, it should be good to try and move the goalposts and have you know other goals and try and work towards something because you just get bored and complacent. And I don't want to sit back and go, I'm a stunt man, I work a lot. Yeah, that's good for me. No, I want to try and do other things. That's what I like to do. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's really great. And I hope that that, that uh, works for you because uh, um, your passion alone is is worth its weight in gold. And your passion and then your experience and then having that passion and experience as an actor after having all that time that you put on regular sets, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth its weight in gold for a director because then you know, you understand the techniques of filmmaking. You understand the dynamics of a set. You understand the power of editing. That's all really important, I think. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really cool, man. That's really cool. Um, our talk has been fantastic. I just have to say that this has been a really great conversation that we've had. I think this is going to be a fantastic episode. Um, I've just got a few more questions, and then and then yeah. uh, we can wrap it up. Um, let me ask you this: so day to day, so if someone's getting into the stunt business, and there may be a few folks that are listening to this, and they may find some of this day to day information interesting, is it difficult for you to get like health insurance? Like, how does that work? Because of my union, so we're with Equity as our union. Um, obviously, in England, I'm not too sure how it works in in um, the US. But with, with my union equity, then we have a separate um, health insurance that we can have. But also, there's other insurances as well, which a lot of us have got. Um, so it's not it's not too hard to get it. It's just obviously you have to pay a premium for whatever you you know you have to say you're a stuntman. You have to tell them all about it. But because there's a lot of us have got the same sort of ins- it's the same place we go to. I guess they've got a special sort of deal or a special um, rate that we have. So it's, it can be expensive, but it just all depends on how much you want to put in and, and how much you want to get back. But but it, it's, you know, obviously you want to have it because if you get injured, then you need to be covered. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it must be tough getting life insurance. I can yeah. just only imagine like any of those insurance companies would be like, this guy throws himself in front of cars all the time? Yeah, premium yeah. way <laughs> Um, That's interesting. And then you were talking a little bit about working out and staying fit. That must be such an important part keeping your core strong, keeping your body strong so that you don't, you're not tweaking like any of the injuries that you've had, are they just like minor injuries, like muscle pulls and stuff like that most of the time? Or are they, or or is it like you're pretty solid and then you just break a leg or something like it's a random question, but you know, no, it's, it's it's all depending, I guess for me, um, I've been lucky. I've, I've fractured stuff. I've fractured bones. I've never actually broken a bone. Um, I've had, quite a few concussions um i've had you know we all get sort of cuts and bruises and and you'll have strains that's what that's for me for other people has been more serious but i I think that training training is important one to keep me in shape so i'm you know i'm physically fit so running around on sets but also one of the main things is we have we have long days so mm-hmm. it's actually just being fit enough to be to be able to on your on your feet running around all day. And you know, if you're not fit, if you're unhealthy and you got an unhealthy diet and you don't really work out, and you're sitting, you can then you're, you know, for, on Game of Thrones we're doing three months of of nitrates and it's freezing. If you're unhealthy, 
then you've got to start getting cold. You've got to start getting those flu or getting sick. You want to try and keep your body in a in a place where you're, you know, you're you're looking after yourself, so you 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 can be the best best version of you. So then, when you're on set, you're not going to get cold, so you can work all day. You're not going to be be feeling tired. So as a whole, it's good for endurance, for doing stunts and throwing around, but also just to be on set and for them them long days that turn into long weeks or long months. You know, um, you go away abroad and you can be abroad for three months on a on a film in Spain and you're working, you're getting in in the morning and you've got to travel to Sephora now and you're working all day and you've got to travel back and you're tired. But if you're fit and you're on, you've got a good diet, that's going to help you um, cope with, with all that, with all the, you know, then the, that work schedule. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. And then all these amazing films that you've worked on and all these amazing projects that you've been a part of, which one's your favorite? I. Uh, I get asked this question a lot, and it's it's hard to answer because everyone has a everyone has a has a different story behind it. it Me- Mexico was amazing because I was in sorry, Legend of Zorro was amazing because I was in Mexico for um for four months, and I was you know I I got to experience like Mexican culture, and I was doing all these cool stunts, and I was horse riding, and and I, I was only young then, and that that was cool. But then you can go to Dumbo. And I was working with Tim Burton again, mm-hmm. and I was with my stunt coordinator Ali Allen. It was like the fourth time working with him, so that was really, we had a good team. Plus, I got to work with Danny DeVito, and from when I was young, I used to look at Danny DeVito, and I because I wanted to be an actor, and people go, "Well, you're never going to be an actor. You're only little." And I go, "Well, look at Danny DeVito." Yeah, <laughs> and I used to want to be like Danny DeVito. And next minute, I was a stuntable on Dumbo, and I'm talking to him, and you know, so. So each each film has a, has like a story behind it, and so you can't be like one favorite film because right. everyone like you could say a film, and not everyone, but you know a lot of films that I've done, I can be fond of it because of a certain thing, because of like oh well that's a film that this 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 happened or on that film I got it like we done Exodus and I remember on, on Exodus it was hard we went to Spain for like a month, but one of the cool things about Exodus even though the the work was was difficult and it was long days the locations manager had all these locations that he'd saved for years and years that he was hoping he could use one day and exodus came along and he said that they were perfect so it was basically these like mountain ranges that like you were mountains that stopped a little bit of beach and then the sea oh, and, wow. he, and and we we'd literally take like an hour and a half to get to it and it and we'd be we'd be on this beach and it'd be empty and it was like no no one will probably ever see this beach unless they come the way we've come and no one will know about it. It's only because this locations manager has, was given this location years ago and kept it, they're hoping it could get used. So that might sound silly, but just to go to certain locations, which you go, wow, I'm so privileged to be, to, to see this because no one in the world gets to see this. You know what I mean? Like th- mm. things like that, I can appreciate because that means a lot to me. Like for me to travel somewhere me to go away and me to, see these cool places that I'd never normally get to see that, you know, I'm appreciative of that. So yeah, so I, ca- I can't really say one, f- one film has been my favorite. There's every film has got something attached to it that, I, that I'll have like fond memories of or fond memories of working with these people or. Mm. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Well, let me ask you a different question then. So is there uh, a shot? Is there a stunt that you've done that, that 
from like setting it up and doing it on set and being really proud of it on set to actually going and seeing the movie and it's covered right and it looks really great in the movie. Is there a stunt that you're the most proud of? Is there a stunt that came out awesome? Um, we done. Uh, there was a shot on the legs of Zorro, and I I had to jump a horse out of a train, and it it hasn't been done that many times before. And I can horse ride, but I'm not a, a great horse rider. Um, and so so I had to I had like two weeks to rehearse for it and like practice with this horse. And if anyone horse rides, you know it's really difficult because the jump the jump out the train was maybe like five foot, wow. and I'm on this horse and. He wanted me to sort of like lean forward. Basically, it was dangerous, and if the horse was to fall over, it'd squash me. And, and it, we done it, and it it was a real cool shot. And I was really proud of that because I'd got myself into a position where I could jump a horse off a train, and the <laughs> shot looked really good. And, and I'm not a natural horse rider. And I'm, there was a guy there called Robinch. He's a good friend of mine, but he's like the stunt coordinator of uh, the Star Wars films. And, and at that time, he, he was uh, he was like the riding double for Zorro. And he came over and said to me, he said, and he doesn't compliment many people, and he said, you know what, you should be really proud of yourself because if it was someone who was a, a top horse rider would do that stunt, they'd be they'd be very happy with how it went, and you're not, so be very proud of what you just done. So that that was one, which I am. And then the second one was um was recently on uh, Game of Thrones on the first episode of this last series, season eight. There's mm-hmm. a there's the um I think it's Ned Umber, he's attached to the wall. And um we, I, the actor set me on fire, so it's like I was attached to a wall, then one of the actors comes over and stabs me with this sword that's on fire and, and I go on fire. And it was my first I'd done I'd been set on fire before, but nothing like major, nothing big. This was my first full burn. Um and if anyone has seen it, um it was it was massive. So I was attached <laughs> to a wall and I was like had a big spike coming through me. Um, and I was engulfed in flames, and that was really good. And then when you seen it on on the episode came out, it was like more near the end of the episode. It was like the big thing at the end, and that was just really cool because I I'd been doing Game of Thrones for a long time, and it was nice to have a nice individual piece on Game of Thrones. That a lot when it came out, a lot of people were talking about it, and a lot of people were like shit. I, I can't believe they set a like a someone on fire and someone small, and then after it, HBO they did like a making of, and they done like a minute forty piece on that. Um, so <laughs> obviously it's good to keep. So you know, it's, like I said earlier on, it's not it's not often that we as stuntmen are celebrated, mm-hmm. and you know that they didn't celebrate me, but they just made a a feature of me doing it, and that was nice because you know it brings stuntmen to the forefront a little bit, and it was nice to have one to have you know a cool shot that would looked amazing and it was dangerous and. But then, obviously, after it, for the reaction and for them to do like a making of, that was really that was really nice. Yes, that's, that's so cool, man. That's so cool. And I got two. All right, I got two questions out of those answers. So, yeah. let me start with the fire one. Uh, yeah. So, what is it like when you're set up? Like, because most ninety nine percent of people will never have that perspective of being in a fire and then being able to walk away from it. Like. What is it like when a fire engulfs you? Like, what do you what do you feel? What do you what do you see? Well, weirdly, um, if you if you if you see on the YouTube video when when I like I speak about it when I when I first went on fire, um, you have you have a mask on and it's like a a perspective. Sorry, like a um, it's like rubber mask thing, fireproof rubber mask, and you have like these little perspex eyes, just little small slots of eyes. 
And obviously when you put the mask on and you're breathing and I was in the mask before before they lit me, I was in it for like 40 minutes. So they just, mm-hmm. it, they all fogged up so you can't see out of it. So when we actually, when they set me on fire, basically in front of my eyes, it was just like a little bit of yellow. And so I thought it would have been, I don't know what I thought it would be, but it didn't seem like I was on fire. So when they put me out, the guy next to me, who obviously put me out and then he was like, everything's okay, he's out. And I kept my mask on because we, we were always going to film it twice. I said, oh, oh, Richard. And he said, yeah. And I said, was I on fire then? <laughs> and, he, and he said, on fire? It was fucking massive. And I was like, wow. Because you have that, you have that much um, gear on. So you have a lot of layers on and a lot of safety layers and, and layers that are gelled and then a fireproof suit and then a costume. The heat shouldn't get through your body or, or your head. So you don't, you don't feel it. I just thought maybe I'd see it or, I'd, or the sound would be different, but it wasn't. Um, so yeah, so so it sounds ridiculous to say, but I actually really couldn't tell that I was on fire. It felt it felt like someone had a little match underneath my eyes, and it was like a little bit, of, a little twinkle of a, like a little flame. That was it. But if you if you look at it, look at it, then you'll see it's it was quite a big fire. <laughs> what a that's exactly what I expect a stuntman to say. <laughs> like it was nothing, man. It was absolutely. But, but I, don't, I don't even mean I don't mean nothing. Ah, it was nothing. But it actually genuinely. Apart from obviously me doing my job and the safety aspect of, you know, you have this tube that goes into your mouth, you have to bite down on because then it closes the the hole to breathe through, so you don't want no fire. There's a lot of things to think about. If yeah. you if you do all that and you just keep your calm, then that's a lot to think about. But if you do it, then the rest is like you just gotta perform and do what you do. So, the, yeah, it, it actually it didn't feel like it didn't feel like fire. And then the, and then the second time you're like, you're okay to go in. I was like, yep, yeah, fine. And in my head, I was like, well. This is just going to be exactly the same, um, yeah. But, but I won't feel it. Yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> I think you think it's going to sound really big or be really warm. It wasn't like that. No, that's so crazy. Say an anticlimax. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. And okay, so then the other question I had was back on the horse thing. So doing stunts with a horse must be crazy difficult because it's it's an animal. Right, yeah. so they can be unpredictable, correct? Like if they're riding next to a train, like are you, how sure are you that that horse is going to do exactly what it's supposed to do? That must be really hard. So, so it is. But what we do is we obviously were we rehearsed on the horse that we were going to use. So every day I'd go on the horse so I could get used to it. And it's funny because this horse that we had, it was a Mexican horse, and I don't know if you know, but in in Mexico they have like bullfighting, and this horse is a is a horse that was used for bullfighting where the matador is on the horse. Wow. So it runs around and you get on this horse and this horse was lovely to, to ride. It was like so nice to ride. It listened to you. you it done anything you asked it to. If you get off it, it was horrible to try and bite. Yeah, it was like this nasty horse. But so <laughs> it made my life easy because it was like, because it was a good horse to ride. I, I'm, I'm an okay rider, but I'm not amazing. It, it actually, it, it helped me because I could, I could get used to it faster and we could try things quicker. So basically the drop is like five foot. So we just had to, you know, build like a two foot drop, then a three foot drop. And then on, on the day, like we'd rehearse in the train, but it becomes very different when there's, you know, 70 people and cameras and everything else. Cause then yeah. the horse, the horse is like, whoa. But what you need to do is you need to be very careful because I'm, ne- I'm nervous doing it because I want to do a good job, but I don't want to, I don't want to tense and be doing things that I wouldn't normally do on the horse because then he starts getting nervous and he's, so the idea is to just try and stay as relaxed as I can be and keep the horses relaxed and just do what we rehearsed. If you do exactly as we rehearsed, it should be fine. 
So as long as you've been professional and you've got the, the right people behind you to help you with horse training, the stunt coordinator is going to help you and give you enough time, then, yeah, then things should go smoothly. But, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun to do. Like, it was, a, it, was, it was a nice stunt. And then I had to, once I'd landed and turned, they had to, like, gallop down this train track. And I remember being on this horse and I was like, this is our old horse. And I was like, riding it like, yeah, yeah. And it was just like, <laughs> one, of the, one of the moments, gallop, galloping down this track in Mexico, riding our old horse. Like, oh, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Like, my, my <laughs> yeah. friends back in Liverpool, you were just like, what doing whatever they normally do, their normal day jobs. Like, this is a, so far away from what, what we normally do. So, yeah. Oh, I love that, man. Like every once in a while when I'm on a set or I'm in a place, I'm, I'm one of those people that sort of absorbs the small little details in the scenery and the, and the position around me. So I'm always like looking at like the ground I'm standing on or like what the atmosphere is like or what the building materials of the building's like or what it sounds like. Um, I'm really envious because you have such a great, you've had so many great experiences. Like I will never know what it's like to have like a breathing horse between my legs while you're riding alongside a train. <laughs> like that must be such a great uh, experience. It's such a vivid memory that's going to stick with you, man. Yeah, it is. And but like I said earlier on, it's, it's just being appreci- appreciative of it. Like they, 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 they were, that was a good memory and that was a good stunt. But the, the best thing about it is, Every day I could I could ride the horses, so I'd go into like the animal area, and it would be all the Mexican uh, cowboys, and these mm-hmm. Mexican cowboys were like some cool dudes. Like they they literally I'd come in, and they'd literally be hungover, and they'd be like, "Hey, bolito, oh," and they they'd be <laughs> because they they would just drink their wages, but then they'd be like, "Polito, you gonna?" and they'd make me jump on the horse, and then someone would come over with like a, a one of them ten gallon hats and give me a hat, another Mexican cowboy would come over and give me like. A, a silk woven belt and we just have a laugh and I, and I just spend time with these people and then someone else would come over and go hey bullet and they'd be teaching me how to use a whip and then and then the next day I'd go in and then another Mexican cowboy who who would be um like lasso and would go oh bullet come over and he'd be he'd be showing me how to lasso and I was like I'm I'm getting to every day to interact with these cowboys from like Durango and all these cool places so I, cool my mates will never ever get to do that. Like, if I could be, I could be ignorant and just go. I don't want to be with them. I want to be with all the other stuntmen and the actors. And I could try. I could sit next to Catherine DC Jones and try and be all cool. But what's the point? Yeah. I've got more. I've got more stories and and I've got I learned more life lessons from interacting with them people and seeing how genuine they was and how giving they was. Um, that's better for me. That 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 allows me to be a better person. And that's what I've tried to do in every job, no matter where you go. Try and try and speak to people in what it could be any department, even if you go somewhere and it's like the security guy in in Spain. Just try and speak to him and see where he's from, and, and you you might find out this guy's got a real cool story. And then you get to speak to these people and go, "Wow, I've just been speaking to so and so, so and so." That that's better for for, for you and and is going to improve you as a human. It's going to give you more life lessons. That that's what I think. Anyway, that's my personal opinion. The stunts is cool and. Doing stuff on film, you know, is exciting, but there's there's a lot more to it, and there's a lot more you can take from it if you open your eyes. Dude, you sound like a really awesome person. We have to hang out sometime. <laughs> still a pain in the ass, though, as my as my Instagram says, still a pain in the ass. 
<laughs> but yeah, man, fuck yeah. If I ever have the opportunity to work with you, man, it'd be fantastic. It sounds like you're a really cool person to hang out with. And Yeah, 100%. Even if we just, just meet up and have a laugh, that's what it's about. I love it, man. I fucking love it. Um, I think this is a good... We've had such a fantastic episode. I think this is a good spot to uh, to wrap it up. Now, what I usually do is I allow you, I, I look for you to give some advice because most people that are listening to the show, I mean, there's some movie fans and film fans, and but it's a lot of people that are either working in the industry or wanting to work into the get into the industry. A lot of young film students, a lot of young, maybe even young uh, stunt performers. Um, so if you had uh, just a word of wisdom, some words of wisdom, it could be like, here's uh, getting into the business or something about patience in the business. Like, what would you tell the younger version of yourself, like that young 17, 18-year-old version when you started? Um, it's strange, really, because what, probably what I'm about to say is, I guess, is what I was like. But I think the main thing is that anything worth, anything worth having, you've got to work hard at it, not... You don't, you, and I've been taught this from a young age, you don't get anything for free. So you can't expect to come into the industry and be working continuously non-stop. You have to, you have to work hard at anything. So no matter what you want to be, especially for stunts, it's a process. You, you've got, you've got to put the effort in and then you'll, then you'll get something from it. If you, if you can work hard at something, then, then it'll give you something back mm-hmm. and, and you have to try and be the, the best person you can be. And I think the main thing is being honest and true to yourself. When I, when I came in the industry, I'd see so many people um, in the stunts industry who were, because they want to work, they're fake and, they're, and they're, they're not themselves. And I, where I come from, I can't be that because I wasn't brought up like that. I've just got to be me. I'm very honest and you know polite and I try and be nice, but I'm not gonna I'm not going to try and be a best friend or be really fake because that's not me. And, and I found that these people, when I started, who were busy and because they were fake and they were trying to, you know, worm their way in, that they slowly fall by the wayside and don't work. If you're if you're honest and you can just be a good person and you can work hard, um, you'll get you'll get a lot from it. And I think not just in in this industry, just in in anything, whether whether it's in life or, you know, nothing's given you for free. Just keep your head down and work hard and try and be a good person. Good advice. It's really good advice. It's so great to have you on the show. It's so wonderful to meet you and have this conversation. It's been, it's honestly, it's been one of my favorite podcasts that I've done. So thank you. It's really fantastic. And I think lastly, this is the moment that I usually let whoever's on the show sort of plug their stuff. So if there's any website, if there's any sort of stuff that you want to plug, if there's a new movie coming out that you're excited about, let us know. What's up? Nothing. If people want to have a little look at my Instagram, little Lowie. Um, I'm on there and then I've got a website littlelowy.com I haven't done much on the website for a while because I've just been busy but yeah uh, Little Lowy, just have a little look on there I try and put stuff on there quite a bit to see what I'm doing and um, keep people informed I'm, I'm busy at the moment I've got quite a few things that I'm working on and so I, you know in the next couple of months I can um, maybe post some things on there but yeah like I'm not one of them people to try and, to try and push all that because like I said that I just want to be me and just keep being the, the pain in the arse that I am. But if people want it, that's cool. If not, then yeah. But also, if people want it, if people want to message me privately on there and, and ask advice or any stunt men who want to, you know, want a, a little bit of advice, I don't, I don't mind if you know. I'd, I'd always reply to people. I'm, I am 
you know, I'm a busy guy, but I'll always get back to people. So if people do want to want to message me, feel free to, you know, that's cool. What did I tell you, right? Awesome, dude. Really great episode. I There are multiple stories in there that inspired the hell out of me. There are multiple things that he talked about that make me so happy that I'm in this business. And I honestly, honest to God, I want to write a part for him. <laughs> I really want to hang out with this dude. I really want to be on set with this guy. It's just, it was such a great, great morning for me this morning. And I'm happy that you guys were able to listen to it with me. Um, and uh, I continue to love your your support. And as promised, I'm trying to make these episodes bigger and better and more interesting as we go. And because of your support, because of the supports of our sponsors, uh, I've been able to do so. So thank you. Thank you so much. And if you want to throw some support at the show, there's a few ways you can. Uh, if you go to the official website and levelthaprocess.com, you can straight up just donate. We have a PayPal donate button for 10 bucks. If you feel like throwing us some loot, if you like this episode and you're like, Mike, you deserve $10. <laughs> Go hit that donation button. That'd be cool. If you don't have cash in your wallet, because so many of us in this business don't, there's a bunch of ways you could do this, right? One of the new things I have up there now is I actually have an Amazon banner. So anybody that uses the banner on the In Love of the Process page or the page in the link in my Instagram account, both the same. Um, any of your purchases, Amazon will kick back like 10% to us. So like if you got to buy shit on Amazon, use our banner. It's that simple. It takes you a second to go to the link. Anything you purchase there, it'll give us some money for the show. Easiest, simplest way to do that. Uh, if you haven't signed up for Audible yet and you want to sign up for Audible, if you do uh, through us, I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. I'll put the link below. Um, but anybody who signs up for the 30-day free trial, if you haven't done so already, you get a free book, 30 days free online, and we get paid. Regardless as to whether or not you stick around, we get paid. So if you just want to sign up for the trial, try it out, and then quit, no big deal. I guarantee you won't, though, because Audible's fantastic. It's a great way to actually ingest books and literature, because uh, I never really have the time to sit down and read. So it's nice to hear it when you're on the road. Uh, when you're in between podcasts, it's perfect, dude. And I know if you guys are listening to the show, you're into podcasts, you're into listening to stuff. So if you haven't done so already, go audibletrial.com backslash hello with the process. Link is below. Sign up. We get some loot that way. Um, <clears throat> and then just support our sponsors. If you go through, click through on our sponsors, check my Instagram page. If I'm posting something about going to visit the sponsors, do so. Because when they see that you guys are interacting, and they see um, that you're going and doing the click-through, they stick with the show. And I'm very conscious of what sponsors that I get for the show. I make sure that I go with people that I like, gear that I use, and stuff that I think will be useful for you guys. So that's the best way to support the show, and I really appreciate it if you do. So more episodes on the way. I'm trying to do this thing uh, maybe every week, every other week, depending upon how busy I get. Um, but uh, we will be doing that journey uh, cross country soon. So there may be a week or two uh, of lull in there where I'm not able to get uploads up to you guys, but I will have a catalog of episodes about it um, because there are so many of you, so many of us that ultimately have to make that move to the West Coast. 
and no one really talks about that. So it'd be cool if I did. And I think I'm going to. Um, but uh, yeah, and as always, uh, big thanks to Code Electro, who does all the music for the show. Definitely go check him out. Um, I'll put his stuff in the uh, description below. But all this music, he has amazing vinyls. He has amazing stuff. One of my favorite dudes in the planet. So go check him out as well. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of it. Uh, so thanks for listening, guys. And uh, I'll see you later. Bye.